Remember Spencer Tracy in Inherit the Wind? I object, I object, I object. On what grounds is it possible that something is holy to the celebrated agnostic? Yes. The individual human mind, in a child's power to master the multiplication table, there is more sanctity than in all your shouted amens and holy holies and hosannas. An idea is a greater monument than a cathedral. And the advance of man's knowledge is a greater miracle than all the sticks turned to snakes or the parting of the waters. Tracy, as the Clarence Darrow-styled lawyer, always reminded me of my dad. And that speech summed up a lot of the ideas my father held and the ideas that would shape my own values as I grew up. So my dad was an agnostic who read me the Bible because he thought it was a beautiful piece of literature. He was a man who felt you had to stand up for what you believed in and who hated rules and conformity. He was also the person who passed on his love of movies to me. My dad died on August 23rd of this year, and I miss him every day. So for my Thanksgiving Cinema Junkie podcast, I'm paying tribute to him by giving thanks for the films he introduced me to, like Inherit the Wind, with its impassioned plea for free thinking. Can't you understand that if you take a law like evolution and you make it a crime to teach it in the public schools, tomorrow you can make it a crime to teach it in the private schools, and tomorrow you may make it a crime to read about it, and soon you may ban books and newspapers, and then you may turn Catholic against Protestant, and Protestant against Protestant, and try to foist your own religion upon the mind of man. If you can do one, you can do the other. Because fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding. And soon, Your Honor, with banners flying and with drums beating, we'll be marching backward, backward, through the glorious ages of that 16th century when bigots burned the man who dared bring enlightenment and intelligence to the human mind. Welcome back to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. My father was Alan Accomando. He grew up in New Jersey and New York in the 1930s, and he loved movies. He would tell me about sneaking into a movie theater called the Star Theater, but he and his friends called it the Rats because that was star spelled backwards. Since there was no VHS or DVD or streaming movies when I was growing up, my only opportunities to see films were in the movie theater when they opened or on TV. So it made a big impression on me when my dad told me I could stay home from school to watch On the Waterfront. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. I don't think I was a teenager yet, but I remember my dad trying to convey the complexities of the film. He explained how as a tough street kid, he would have frowned on ratting on anyone. But then there are times when telling the truth, to fight corruption or evil, is necessary. But then he also added how the story of Terry Malloy's longshoreman didn't provide an exact parallel to what Kazan had done. I think staying home to watch that film laid the foundation not just for my love of movies, but for my ultimate career path to becoming a film critic. I always wanted to talk about movies and to talk about them in a bigger context. Since my dad was a teacher, he also liked to use films to force me to think. Take 2001, A Space Odyssey. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. Feel it. My mind is going. There is no question about it. I came out of the film completely baffled. I think I was 14 when I saw the film on its re-release, and I asked my dad what it meant. And he responded by asking, what did I think it meant? I said, I don't know. And then he would prompt me, what does the monolith look like? So I pondered, and then I said, well, like Hal's memory banks? Then he said, so what could that mean? And so this back-and-forth exchange went on for quite a while, and all I wanted was to be told what the film meant. But this process my dad put me through helped me to think more critically, not just about this film, but about films in general and about everything in life. Good afternoon, Gentlemen, I am a HAL 9000 computer. Now, not all films prompted deep discussions. My dad and I shared a love for a wide variety of films. One of our favorites was the original King Kong from 1933. Wait a minute. Let me through, officer. My name's Denham. Just a moment. Oh, Lieutenant. Lieutenant, I'm Carl Denham. Carl Denham? Denham? Oh, that's the man that captured the monster. Well, Denham, the airplane's got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. My dad loved gorillas and dinosaurs and adventure, and this film had it all. My dad spoke so lovingly of Kong and how terrible it was to capture him and chain him up and how tragic the love story was. Yes, it was a love story, one that always makes me cry. Watching it with my dad taught me compassion for creatures or beings that we might not understand or even be able to communicate with or that we might even be frightened of. I remember he bought me a model kit for King Kong, and of the creature from the Black Lagoon, too, but that he was a bit embarrassed that his little girl, I was around six at the time, had asked him to buy red paint so I could bloody up the models. I guess my love of horror began early. Actually, my parents are completely responsible for my obsession with horror, although they staunchly deny it. They didn't like leaving us kids with babysitters, so that meant we got taken to some inappropriate films, like The Collector. 
From the bold and breathless international bestseller, The Collector, comes the suspenseful, disturbing drama of a strange progression. From thought to wish. From desire to obsession. From dream to nightmare. Nightmare indeed. It gave me nightmares after witnessing Terrence Stamp kidnap Samantha Egger and keep her locked up like a butterfly in his collection. I was five when I saw that, and it scared me. I also remember seeing Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro, and it would be years later that I realized the image of a dog carrying a severed hand that kept popping up in my nightmares came from that film. I think seeing things that scared me made me want to understand why they scared me and to keep testing my boundaries. I'm not complaining, but I don't think my dad ever understood my obsession with horror, even though he helped to create it. Hey, hey, hey. This is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue give now button and donate what you can. All right. Thanks. Okay, so back to the films we shared a love for, like anything with the Marx Brothers. My mom introduced me to Monty Python, but my dad gave me the gift of the Marx Brothers. The trustees have a few suggestions they would like to submit to you. I think you know what the trustees can do with their suggestions. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. The Marx Brothers were my introduction to comic anarchy and to the irresistible appeal of tearing down authority. I think the humor of the Marx Brothers still plays well today because they had no respect for anything, and their irreverence keeps them young forever. I remember showing my son his first Marx Brothers film and trying to pass the love of the Marx Brothers on to a new generation. I remember watching The Coconuts at the Ken Cinema, and Groucho broke the fourth wall. Pardon me while I have a strange interlude. Why, you couple of baboons? What makes you think I'd marry either one of you? Strange how the wind blows tonight. It has a finity voice that reminds me of poor old Marsden. How happy I could be with either of these two. If both of them just went away. As he looked directly into the audience, my six-year-old son tapped me on the arm and excitedly said, Mom, Groucho's talking to me. I cherish that memory. I don't know if I've passed my passion for the Marx Brothers on to my son, but I have passed on my love for action films. I took him to see The Matrix six times in the theater and woke him up one school night at 2 a.m. to watch the opening of a screener I had for District B-13 because the parkour action was so intoxicating. He agreed, but then asked if he could please go back to sleep. 
I also made him come up to a projection booth at UCSD where I had programmed a Gamera film. And the 35-millimeter print that came was brand new. And I made him smell the reels because it was something he would likely never experience again. Mostly, he probably thinks his mom's a little crazy. But we have cinematic passions that overlap, and for that I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to my dad that he taught me to share those passions with a new generation. My dad also introduced me to the great romantic teams of Tracy and Hepburn, Powell and Loy, and Bogey and Bacall. In hindsight, I appreciate how equal these relationships were, like Tracy and Hepburn in Pat and Mike, where she's an athlete and he wants to handle her. You don't expect to be watching me every minute. Out of... Every 24 hours out of every day, do you? If I have to, sure. Not sure I'll like that. <laughs> Not asking you to like it. But usually, pretty soon, pretty soon I'll trust you. Because you'll trust me. Because what's good for you is good for me and you for me, see? We're the same. We're equal. We're partners, see? 5050. That was how these two always seemed. Well matched. The same could be said of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not. You're not very hard to figure. Only at times. Sometimes I know exactly what you're going to say. Most of the time. The other times... The other times you're just a stinker. What'd you do that for? Been wondering whether I'd like it. What's the decision? I don't know yet. It's even better when you help. Uh, sure you won't change your mind about this. Uh-huh. This belongs to me and so do my lips. I don't see any difference. Oh, I do. Okay. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and... But I think it was being shown the thin man with William Powell and Myrna Loy that set my unrealistic expectations for marriage. As Nick and Nora Charles, they made marriage seem like an endless party, constantly brightened by witty exchanges. Pretty girl. Yes, she's a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Who is she? Oh, darling, I hope I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice. I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. They made marriage seem delightful, with spouses being able to poke fun at each other with loving jabs. Well, I hope you're satisfied. Huh? Where am I? You're not in a shooting gallery. Ah, oh, but sugar, this is the nicest Christmas present I've ever had. You act as though it were the only Christmas present you ever had. Hmm. Say, so where'd you get that wristwatch? Christmas present. Yeah, I gave it to you. You did? <clears throat> well, you must admit I've got pretty good taste, haven't I? You finished with this? Yes, and I know as much about the murder as they do. Oh, I'm a hero. I was shot twice in the Tribune. 
I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids. It's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. I remember being introduced to these films at a wonderful venue in San Diego called Cinema Leo, where you would lie down to watch movies, and they only showed old ones, and usually on double bills. I remember my dad won a prize for correctly identifying all the stars in the black and white posters on the walls. And that made me go home and study the photos in my growing library of movie books and attempting to memorize everyone's name and face. One of the films I saw at Cinema Leo that I fell in love with was The Adventures of Robin Hood. Come, sir, I've around you. Bring Sir Robin food. At once, do you hear? Such impudence must support a mighty appetite. True enough, Your Highness. We Saxons have little to fatten on by the time your tax gatherers are through. Be seated, gentlemen. No need to stand on ceremony on my account. So you think you're overtaxed, eh? Overtaxed, overworked, and paid off with a knife, a club, or a rope. Why, you speak treason. Fluently. I advise you to curb that wagging tongue of yours. It's a habit I've never formed, Your Grace. That glorious technicolor popped off the screen, and Errol Flynn as the roguish hero made me swoon. And no one was more lovely than Olivia de Havilland. Well, he's brave and he's reckless, and yet he's, yet he's gentle and kind. He's not brutal like... Tell me, when you are in love, is it... Well, is it hard to think of anybody but, but one person? Yes, indeed, my lady, and sometimes there's a bit of trouble sleeping. I know, but it's a nice kind of not sleeping. Yes, and it affects your appetite, too. Not that I've noticed it's done that to you, except when he was in the dungeon waiting to be hanged. And does it make you want to be with him all the time? Yes. And when he's with you, your legs as weak as water. And tell me, my lady, when he looks at you, do you feel the kind of pricky feeling like goosey pimples running all up and down your spine? Then there's not a doubt of it. Doubt for us. But you're in love. What do you want? Robin. I must say. I must say. Keep quiet, Bess. Why, are you completely mad? Why did you come here? To see you. But don't you realize that... My men told me what you did for me, so I've come to thank you. And after what I couldn't help overhearing about that uh, prickly feeling, I'm very glad I did come. That was pure entertainment gold. But again, there was a male-female relationship between equals. Both Robin and Marion risked their lives to stand up for what they believed in. And there was a message, too, about greed, justice, and standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. My sister interviewed my dad more than a decade before he passed away. And he made one reference to movies that I want to share with you. At some point, I went with my father uh, and a friend of his down to a neighborhood theater and we saw the movie Jack London. Since you've made me a horrible example, would you mind discussing my story a little bit? Not at all, not at all. Well, sir, just what is it that's so wrong with my writing? Well, boiled down, I should say too much imagination, too much exaggeration. After all, you know, London, slap a hole in him the size of a man's fist is... Uh... I saw it happen in a joint in Singapore. You saw it happen? Well, perhaps I shouldn't have brought it up. You see, Professor Hilliard, I've only written about what I saw. It seems to me there's nothing wrong in writing about life and truth. But do you think you will get very far writing about poverty, cruelty, brutality? It's my experience that they exist, sir. And if I could put them down on paper so people would think about them and try to destroy them, then I'm doing something. After the movie, 
which impressed me very, very much. I asked my father, he said, really, a person? And he says, yes, he said, he wrote many books and, you know, I read some of them. So, that inspired me, and with the card that Uncle Joe had me get from the New York Public Library, I went there and got many books. One about Jack London called Sailor on Horseback by Irving Stone, and a number of books by Jack London, in particular the book Martin Eden. After reading this biography and the book Martin Eden, I decided that I wanted to be a writer. And I spent a good deal of time after that getting many, many books on writing and trying to write, which I don't think was too successful. I wish I had more of my dad preserved on tape. You always think you'll have more time to do things. One of the last films I watched with my dad in a theater was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. My dad introduced me to Frank Capra and his brand of Capricorn. Yes, Capra could be sentimental, but he could also be clear-eyed and see corruption and greed. Mr. Smith is perhaps his most perfect film, with the cynical Gene Arthur coming up against the wide-eyed idealism of James Stewart's junior senator, Jefferson Smith. Our senator has a bill in mind, like you were camp, right? Right. Fine. Now, what does he do? He has to sit down first and write it up. The why, when, where, how, and everything else. Now, that takes time. Well, but this one is so simple. Oh, I see. This one's simple. Yeah, and with your help, why Oh, I'm you... helping, yeah. Simple, and I'm helping, so we knock it off in record-breaking time of, let's say, three, four days. Oh, a, a day. A day? Yes, just tonight. Tonight. <laughs> I don't want to seem to be complaining, Senator, but in all civilized countries, there's an institution called dinner. Oh, sort of hungry myself. Well, uh, couldn't we sort of have some stuff brought in on trays, you know, like big executives? You know? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, dinner comes in on trays. We're big executives. We're light into this. And we finish the bill before morning. Yeah. It's dawn. Your bill is ready. You take it over there and introduce it. How? You get to your feet in the Senate, take a long breath, and start spouting. But not too loud, because a couple of the senators might want to sleep. Then a curly-headed page boy takes it up to the desk, where a long-faced clerk reads it, refers it to the right committee. Committee, huh? Committee. Why? <laughs> Look, uh, committees, uh, small groups of senators have to sift a bill down, look into it, study it, and report to the whole Senate. You can't take a bill nobody ever heard about and discuss it among 96 men. Where would you get? Yeah, I see that. Good. Now, where are we? Some committee's got it. Yeah. Now, days are going by, Senator. Days, weeks. Finally, they think it's quite a bill. It goes over to the House of Representatives for debate and a vote. But it has to wait its turn on the calendar. Calendar, huh? Yeah. That's the order of business. Your bill has to stand way back there in line, unless the steering committee thinks it's important. What's that? What? The steering committee. Do you really think we're getting anywhere? Oh, yes, Miss Saunders. Now, uh, tell me, what's the steering committee? Committee of the majority party leaders. They decide when a bill is important enough to be moved up toward the head of the list. Well, this is. Pardon me, this is. <laughs> Where are we now? We're over in the House. Oh, yeah, House. More amendments, more changes, and the bill goes back to the Senate. The Senate doesn't like what the House did to the bill, they make more changes. The House doesn't like those changes, stymie. So? So they appoint men from each house to go into a huddle called a conference, and they battle it out. Finally, if your bill is still alive after all this vivisection, it comes to a vote. Yes, sir. The big day finally arrives. 
and Congress adjourns. That film also had a scene that my dad and I cherished. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today, full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm licked? You all think I'm licked? Well, I'm not licked. And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. That's right. You fight for lost causes harder than anything else. To me, that was about staying true to your beliefs and ideals, no matter how many corrupt tailors were out there. I'll tell you something. If you want me out of here, you're going to have to throw me out. That's exactly what I'm going to do, Mr. Berger. I'm going to get the police. I'm not going to muss myself up fussing around with you. I'm going to get the police and get you out of here if I have to. Okay. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Okay. A lack of respect for the establishment and for rules and conformity of any kind were key to my dad's personality. So one of his favorite songs comes from that rebellious hippie musical, Hair. My parents let me see the play when I was in sixth grade, and it caused a bit of a stir at my elementary school. Kids kept asking me if I had really seen naked people on stage, and I got banned from a friend's house because I played the soundtrack. But I Got Life was one of my dad's favorite songs, and in the film version of Hair, Treat Williams sings it as he dances down a fancy table, shattering more decorum than fine china. You've got a hell of a nerve, young man. I got life, mother. I got life, sister. I got freedom, brother. And I got good times, man. I got crazy ways, daughter. I got million-dollar charm, cousin. I got headaches and toothaches and bad times to like you. I got my hair, I got my head, I got my brains, I got my ears, I got my eyes, I got my nose, I got my mouth, I got my teeth, I got my tongue, I got my chin, I got my neck, I got my tits, I got my heart, I got my soul, I got my back, I got my ass. One last break, and I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like 
chocolate blood to savor with Dracula. Or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Then there were films like The Graduate. Oh, my God. Pardon? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, no. What's wrong? Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. <laughs> like what? What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't know. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> when I saw that as a young kid, I saw it as a comedy that ended happily ever after with Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross running away from the adults and the respectable rich society. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. But my dad told me that when I got older, I might see that film differently. The comedy might seem darker with an edge, and that ending with a shot that held just a little bit too long on the couple at the back of the bus, might suggest something less than a happy ending. He was right, of course, and I'm thankful for the way he made me look at movies and think about them from different perspectives and to think about how they were made. My dad was Italian, and my uncles worked in Hollywood. Two of them did the presidential campaign spots for John F. Kennedy. The story was that they were Republicans, and some Republicans told them not to take the job, or else. Well, you don't tell that to an Italian. So they said not only would they take the job, but they would make Kennedy win. That's the story I was told. But being Italian led me to films made not just by Italian filmmakers like Fellini and De Sica, two of my dad's favorites, but also Italian-Americans like Scorsese and Coppola. I was 12 when The Godfather came out, and I fell in love with Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. I know, not exactly a romantic icon, but what can I say? Okay, my father's way of doing things is over. It's finished. Even he knows that. I mean, in five years, the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. Trust me, that's all I can tell you about my business. My dad and I talked about whether the film was good or bad in terms of how it represented Italian-Americans. And he pointed out that not all images of Italians have to be positive. The mafia existed, and there's nothing wrong with doing a story about it. But again, he wanted me to think about things in more complex terms. So he pointed out that it did romanticize that world. And he also talked about how the film showed a man who destroyed the very thing he set out to save. Fredo, you're my older brother. And I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Michael placed the family above all else, but in trying to protect it, he destroyed it. So once again, my dad made me look at a film that I thought was just entertainment and think about what else it meant. 
There's so many films that my dad and I shared that I can't possibly list them all. But we didn't always agree. There's the case of The Sound of Music. The hills are alive with the sound of music. With songs they have sung for a thousand years. I would joke with my dad that when I watched that film with him, it was proof how much I loved him. forever thankful to my dad for sharing his passion for film with me. And through film, he found a way to teach me about important things in life, about fighting for causes, seeing from other points of view, having compassion, and appreciating art and its place in society. One of the reasons I love writing about film is that I always hope that in some small way, I can pass on my passion for film to others as my dad did to me. My dad lived here in San Diego, and I saw him almost every weekend. So during the week, I can pretend that he's still around, and come Sunday, I'll be able to talk to him about movies. And each time it sinks in that he's not here anymore, I know I can go home and put on one of our favorite films and know that he will be as vividly alive as those images on the screen. So here's to all the people who have shared their love of film with others, and to all the films that give us memories to be thankful for. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.